the belief is that the formation of new memories requires protein synthesis, so the formation of new proteins. And there have been some early experiments done where if you block protein synthesis, you block the formation of that memory. Which is scary thought, kind Which of. is scary thought. So we've all learned how to read and write, but have you ever wondered how our brains store such information? In this episode, we'll explore that question as well as techniques to enhance our memory, how drugs affect our learning process, and other cool topics about the brain with Dr. Melissa Masacampo, a psychology professor here at Wake Forest University. I'm your host, Jonathan Tratner, and you're listening to Podcasts at WFU, an educational exploration of hot topics. So just to jump right in, could you tell us a little bit about your background in psychology? You studied behavioral neuroscience, and I was just wondering if you could explain to our listeners what about that piqued your interest and how you came to focus on that. Yeah, sure. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you. When I started college, I went to the University of Massachusetts at Boston, and Mm -hmm. I entered in as a psychology major. I took my low-level psych courses and then started taking some upper-level clinical psych courses and just realized that it really wasn't for me. Um, And around the same time, I took my biopsych course, which was required for the major, a course that I was really terrified to take because I didn't have a very strong biology background. And I ended up just really loving it. I I turned out that I I did okay at it. I think I had a knack for it, and I really loved it. And from there, I switched my focus, tried to um, get some of the bio experience that I didn't have from high school and early college, and then I shift my career path and trajectory and then when I graduated with my bachelor's I applied for PhD programs in neuroscience. Thank you and just to clarify for our listeners could you explain exactly what behavioral neuroscience is? So behavioral neuroscience is the study of our behavior with a large emphasis on the brain so as a behavioral neuroscientist we want to address behavior thinking about um, functional ways of explaining things physiological ways of explaining things and then we also want to consider developmental and evolutionary ways of explaining things and again a large emphasis is placed on the brain, brain functioning, and then how the brain influences behavior. And what kind of are your areas of interest in terms of neuroscience, I guess? Oh, gee, (laughs) that's really broad. What if you had to choose? Uh, Now, my biggest area of interest is learning. So as you know, I teach a class on learning and neurobiology of learning. It's a great course. (laughs) Um, But I'm also interested in how people learn. As an educator, I want to um, take what I know about how the brain learns and kind of translate that onto how students learn and how I can help students engage with material and, and retain it for longer and, and become interested in it. Wow. And maybe now could we talk about steps that faculty members, uh, especially you, are doing to improve or utilize the science of learning as we understand it to enhance student learning and retention? Yeah, um, and I think that's something that I love that Wake Forest does a nice job of teaching faculty this kind of information. And now that we know so much about the science of learning, it's really become easy to apply it to our classes. So there are a few things that I like to do in my classes. Mm-hmm. Um, because what I ultimately want to do is strengthen the associations between learned information for the students and have them be able to recall it more effectively and more accurately when I'm assessing their learning, i.e. on an exam. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing I want to do is make it interesting. If the material is interesting to them, if there's an emotional component, they're more likely to remember it. We know that emotions play a really big role in the consolidation of memories. Okay. I also like to reactivate prior knowledge. So lectures all be presenting new information, but then always make sure that I try to relate it to prior knowledge that we've talked about previously in the class. Which is very helpful for me personally. <laughs> thank so <you>. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That's, that's validating. Um, 
Right, so if students can form these new associations between existing pieces of learned material, they're just really just connecting more and more synapses, so they make that recall more effective. When they do recall it, I like to tell students to do what's called retrieval practice. There's a lot of evidence showing that retrieval practice is a really effective way to consolidate learning. And what I tell students to do, or what I, what I ask them to do, is to practice recalling material, so take a practice quiz, try teaching each other the material, and just retrieve the information but do it in a way where they're not reading from the textbook. So they should be retrieving it from their own memory stores. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but like I said, this memory is like silly putty. So if they're remembering something inaccurately, it's very important to make sure that you do have an accurate memory of it. So I always tell them to go back and check what you did so that it's accurate. And then you can think about the, the real information and then kind of put it back in your long-term storage, let it stew for a little while, and then bring it back up and recall it again and practice that over and over and over. And like I said, there's a lot of evidence that students that do do that um, get better test scores, and I've seen that personally. I've seen some huge increases in test scores from students that do do that retrieval practice. Wonderful. Thank you. And are there any other areas besides retrieval practice or making associations to previously learned information that can enhance students' learning and retention? In essence, are there any magic memory makers? Yeah. So what I always tell my students to do is study with a friend. Um, you've probably heard me say that about 50 times. Um, but it, it's really effective. So yeah. what I tell students to do is learn the material as if it's their job to teach it to the rest of the class. Mm -hmm. Often I see students make the mistake of, um, oh, I read the textbook a couple days before the exam and I thought that was going to be enough but that's not enough. So in that case, you're, you're recognizing the material, but you're not able to recall it effectively. Mm -hmm. So in order to really recall it effectively on the exam, I tell students that you need to be able to teach it to a classmate and teach it to the classmate as if that classmate has never seen that material before. Okay. And that's mutually beneficial, one, because it's helping the teacher articulate the material. And I tell them, if you can't articulate the material, then you probably don't understand it. Yeah. Um, your understanding probably isn't where it should be. But also, for the learner, they're actively listening and actively critiquing, and they can ask questions that maybe a professor might ask on an exam. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's, it's really mutual beneficial, and then I, I recommend that students switch roles, so then the teacher then practices being a student, and they each teach each other. Very cool. Yeah. Thank you. And I know there are some molecular mechanisms discussed on how memories form. I was hoping you could touch on what those are and how they relate to learning. Sure, yeah. Um, so long-term potentiation is the name given to what we believe is the neural process that underlies most types of learning. Okay. Um, and then so what that means is if you have two cells that are talking to each other, if that message doesn't make it to the second cell, then that message just goes away. When you're learning something, um, what I like to call a strong synapse, um, a synapse is a connection between two cells. Um, a strong synapse is where the message coming from the first cell can have an effect in the second cell, so that message then can be carried on to other parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. um, so the neural mechanisms and the molecular mechanisms that underlie that are causing the second cell to be more sensitive to the first cell's message okay. and also causing the first cell to send a stronger message. So there are a few things that happen there. There's a neurotransmitter that gets released from the first cell. That neurotransmitter is called glutamate and that's an excitatory neurotransmitter. So that's gonna cause an excitatory response in the second cell. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that excitatory response, 
there are more um, receptors for glutamate put in the membrane of that second cell so that when the first cell releases glutamate, the second cell is more sensitive to that message. Also, some molecules that get secreted from the second cell that actually go back to the first cell mm -hmm. that tell that first cell to release more of that excitatory message. So essentially, the first cell that contains some of the information for memory is activated, and when that happens, it releases glutamate to a second cell that causes more glutamate production in the first cell, and then the next time someone thinks of that memory, it becomes more sensitive to the glutamate, allowing the information to transmit more steadily between the two and really support that memory from degrading. Exactly, yeah. Thank you. And that process called long-term potentiation has four stages. Could you articulate what those stages are, I yeah. guess? So the first stage is generalization. That means that more of those glutamate receptors are being put in that postsynaptic or the second cell membrane. But those glutamate receptors are not fixed, they're not stable, they're not okay. permanent. Um, so the cell needs to come up with some mechanisms to keep those receptors there. Mm -hmm. So the second stage is stabilization, where proteins that are involved in the architecture of the cell stabilize that cell. They make it physically stronger and they also make it physically larger so okay. that you can put in more of those receptors. And the third stage is called consolidation okay. where you make new proteins and mm -hmm. these new proteins play the role of um, well, the fourth stage maintenance so those proteins that were made in the third stage end up interacting with those glutamate receptors and, and keeping them in the membrane and really making that new um, new strong synapse, keeping it strong and keeping it potentiated. Wow, thank you. So we talk about in the class how this process of long-term potentiation relates to learning. So I was hoping you could discuss what brain region or regions are involved with memory and learning. So there's not one part of the brain that learns or mm -hmm. that has memory. Mm -hmm. um, the brain has multiple memory systems, and I try to get that across as we talk about some of them. Certainly we don't have time for all of them, but yeah. some of the biggest ones we talk about are the role of the hippocampus in declarative memory. Know that the hippocampus is required for consolidating short-term to long-term memory. So in case studies of individuals who don't have a hippocampus, they have short-term memory. They have perfectly fine short-term working attention, um, but they can't form those new memories. Those uh, events will never make it into their long-term storage, and they'll never have declarative memories of those events. Okay. Um, but they do have declarative memories of events that happened before they lost their hippocampus. So that tells us that the hippocampus is not where long-term memories are stored, mm -hmm. but it does seem to play a big role in the transference of short-term memory to long-term memory. And to reiterate, this process of consolidation, which is one of the stages of long-term potentiation, when I taught my mom how to use emojis, the synapses in her hippocampus consolidated this information through long-term potentiation, and the next time she wanted to send me an emoji, she knew how? Exactly. And so we just saw how memories are consolidated, and a few minutes ago, while discussing the stages of long-term potentiation, you mentioned that the stage of consolidation is underlied by the formation of new proteins. Now, assuming my memory consolidated properly, I recall that if you block the formation of proteins, something sci-fi and kind of scary happens. Can you give me a little refresher on this? So the belief is that the formation of new memories requires protein synthesis, so mm -hmm. the formation of new proteins, which, like I just mentioned, play a large role in stabilizing, stabilizing that synapse, mm -hmm. the connection between those two cells. And there have been some early experiments done where if you block protein synthesis, you block the formation of that memory. 
Are you saying that if you give someone a drug that blocks protein synthesis, they won't remember anything that just happened to them? Yeah, so if you're in class learning something, what you don't want to be doing is blocking your protein synthesis because yeah. you probably won't, won't remember any of the information you're learning in class. Which is not very helpful which, come exam time. Which is not very helpful yeah. come exam time, exactly. That's crazy, but there's also this process called reconsolidation. So if I remember that in your class I learned what protein synthesis was, I'm actually actively reconsolidating that, that memory back into working memory. Yeah. So is there any role in like what happens if you block that? Right, and that's a really cool question, and that's one of my other favorite things to talk about in the class. Um, so the idea is that once you have a memory in your long-term memory, like you said, the, the definition of protein synthesis, and you mm -hmm. know that that's important for learning, when you have a memory in your long-term memory, you can recall it. And the idea is that when you recall it, you're, um, you're causing it to become labile and subject to disruption. And in class, I use the metaphor of silly putty. So every time you remember a memory or recall a memory, you're kind of reshaping the silly putty just a little bit and causing mm -hmm. that memory to be just a little bit different. And that's fine, except that you don't want to cause that memory to become too different because then your memory is no longer accurate. Yeah. Um, and then so the um, initial belief that we now know to be pretty true is that that reconsolidation process, that reforming that silly putty, also requires protein synthesis. And so there have been some experiments causing an animal to recall a memory, a, a memory that's already in their long-term storage, mm -hmm. and if you block protein synthesis during recall, you can effectively eliminate that memory, or at least eliminate any um, indicative behavior that that rodent has that memory. Okay, while maintaining other memories, right? Yes. So it just affects that one specific memory that was recalled. Exactly. Wonderful, thank you. And now I was hoping we could transition to an intriguing thought about how drug addiction is to a certain extent, a learned behavior. Could you touch on the underlying associations, classical and operant conditioning, and then explore how that relates to drug addiction? Right, yeah, and I think that's really interesting, and I think it's a really important thing to be thinking about. Um, so when a person uses a drugs, there are a lot of associations that happen. Mm -hmm. And like you said, some of these are classical associations and some of these are operant associations. So a classical conditioning is a stimulus-stimulus association. So what that means is that you would have what we call the unconditioned stimulus, so something that's going to cause a response, and that response would be unlearned. So okay. in the case of addiction, it would be the drug is the unconditioned stimulus and that would cause the unlearned response of getting high and feeling good. Now what you have are conditioned stimuli which are previously neutral. So it might be um, the person you're hanging out with, the person you buy the drugs from, the environment that you're in when you're taking the drugs. Mm -hmm. um, all of those before taking the drug, they don't have any drug associations. But because that that high, that unconditioned response from taking that drug is so powerful, now all these other previously neutral stimuli take on that same um, drug associations. So what that means is that the next time you, say, go to your friend's house where you did your drug, that's going to evoke all these drug-related memories okay. and cause drug-conditioned craving. Okay. And now what that craving turns into is more likely to actually do the drug. So operant conditioning is a stimulus response association. Mm -hmm. So if you do a behavior and that behavior is rewarded or reinforced, that behavior is more likely to happen again. So okay. in the case of addiction, you do a drug, you get this reinforcing high good feeling that's extremely reinforcing because what drugs do is they hijack all your brain reward circuitry. Um, all these normal, like you get an A on an exam, you eat a delicious meal, all of those activate your brain 
brain reward circuitry, a drug of abuse will activate the brain reward circuitry and then make it so activated mm -hmm. that um, these associations become so powerful and so ingrained and they happen so quickly. So if you take a drug of abuse, that's your behavior and then that behavior is rewarded and that's a really strong reinforcer. So you're much more likely to do the drug again. And that's really a scary thought. And to recap on operant and classical conditioning, a good example might be seen from an article I wrote on the opioid epidemic for our school newspaper. I put forth this hypothetical scenario about a girl named Mary who was coerced into trying a drug and decided to do so while listening to a specific band. In this case, the drug was heroin, and she feels fantastic because drugs of abuse, like heroin, as you mentioned, hijack the brain's reward circuitry, specifically by increasing dopamine, a neurotransmitter associated with a feeling of reward. And to reach that pleasurable feeling again, Mary was motivated to get the drug and shoot up more, which is referred to as operant conditioning. And each time she continued to shoot up, she continued listening to that one band, and unfortunately, Mary's academic performance started slipping, so her friends took her to rehab. And she was fine for a while, but when she came back, she saw and heard her friend jamming out and listening to the same band she used to shoot up to, and she suddenly felt the need to do heroin and relapsed. That happened because Mary had associated heroin with the band, and that's known as classical conditioning. Yeah, exactly. And that is kind of scary, though. Yeah, but I think that um, understanding how learning works really kind of puts us in the right direction to help treat addiction and solve the drug problems. We're not going to solve any drug problems by locking drug addicts in jail. Mm -hmm. um, we need to help them relearn these associations and, and kind of divert those drug associations to something more healthy, um, like sports or, you know, a hobby or something like that. And that's what's called competitive reinforcement, right? Yeah, that's where, exactly right. So where you can provide outlets for people to increase dopamine, which is the neurotransmitter that is associated with a reward feeling, correct? Mm -hmm, that's right. So providing other outlets for people to increase the dopamine would essentially help wean them off of drugs of abuse? That's the idea. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's a lot easier said than done, yeah. of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but using a drug that can help wean them off the physical dependence of the drug, like for a heroin addict, using something like methadone, which mm -hmm. is a less potent form of morphine, will help kind of deal with the negative withdrawal effects. And then simultaneously working with a therapist to try to, like you said, redirect mm -hmm. um, these conditioned reinforcers to something not harmful that's all that's uh, that's reinforcing as well and there's actually some really good evidence about this um putting things like community centers in at-risk neighborhoods mm -hmm. so where children are at risk to become drug users those neighborhoods where the kids had access to these competitive reinforcers are much less likely to turn to drugs when they have something positive to turn to that is definitely a comforting thought and like I brought up earlier in the hypothetical scenario about Mary and the opioid abuse, you just mentioned a minute ago how weaning somebody off of a drug of abuse can lead to some withdrawal symptoms. Am I correctly associating that to operant conditioning in the sense that if there is positive reinforcement, is there also negative reinforcement? Yes. Yes, there is, Jonathan. Um, that was a really good association. Thank you. Yeah, so... 
a user who is addicted to a drug is physically dependent on it, meaning mm-hmm. that when they don't have the drug in their system, they're, they're going to go through these negative withdrawal periods, and these withdrawal periods can be really painful and extremely unpleasant. So the way to get rid of that is to take the drug again. So in that way, that like you said, it's called negative reinforcement, where you're taking the drug, doing that behavior to get rid of something negative, and then that ends up being another reinforcer to take the drug again. Uh, is, is there ever a point that Obviously, they first started taking a drug to get a high or to feel good. Um, mm. And then it slowly diminished to the point where they started feeling withdrawal symptoms. Is taking the drug to avoid withdrawal symptoms also correlated with any pleasurable feeling, or is it just. You know, at some point, once a user gets so dependent on the mm-hmm. drug, they're just taking the drug to feel normal. Really? And there's very little pleasurable feeling. Um, they're taking the drug to avoid feeling bad. Gotcha. And, and caffeine, right? That is kind of a staple, widespread, you know, Starbucks is everywhere. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a staple drug. Like, could we see this behavior in caffeine with coffee? Oh, absolutely. And I should be my own case study for that. Um, I, I drink coffee every day to avoid feeling bad and to mm-hmm. make myself feel normal. Absolutely. Okay. And then Very once cool. I start feeling bad in the afternoon, I have my afternoon cup. Afternoon cup, and yeah. then the evening cup. The, I do the, not the, have no, an evening really. Cup. Okay. All right. As a college student, I uh, <laughs> I start later in the day, but awesome. And I guess just trying to transition back full circle to the learning and memory. What do you think is the molecular effects of taking a drug, because you were a drug researcher for a little bit, you studied the effects of alcohol abuse. What kind of negative side effects could that cause that may hinder learning ability? Well, there's a lot of different things that you could think about. Mm -hmm. Um, So when a person becomes dependent on the drug, there are absolutely molecular um, compensatory mechanisms that the brain has. So for example, it's going to alter the number of postsynaptic receptors for dopamine, Mm -hmm. um, causing the brain to become dependent on the drug so that you need the drug to have these postsynaptic effects. Um, That can affect learning absolutely because a person will be so preoccupied with finding the drug and thinking mm-hmm. about the drug that they'll ignore any other stimuli in their lives. So okay. they wouldn't be able as able to attend to other stimuli and therefore learn it. And also, depending on the drug, there are lots of different types of side effects. As you mentioned, I was an alcohol researcher in my postdoctoral research at the Baptist Hospital. And what I specifically studied was alcohol withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I was interested in was looking at alcohol withdrawal seizure and asking what were the molecular underpinnings of alcohol withdrawal seizure, and we identified a type of calcium channel that we believe is responsible for alcohol withdrawal seizure. We were developing a novel therapeutic to try to block that calcium channel, and in rodents, at least, we saw really positive effects of that. That's awesome. And and I guess just to kind of wrap it up a little bit, what is a calcium channel? (laughs) A calcium channel is a voltage-dependent channel that would allow calcium to enter a cell. Um, So every cell has a voltage, a membrane potential, Mm -hmm. um, and the calcium channels respond to changes and membrane potential. Okay. Um, so what that means is basically potential energy in the cell. So when there, a flow of ions enters the cell, that's going to change the membrane potential. It's either going to increase it or decrease it. So when that membrane potential becomes increased as a result of positively charged ions entering that cell, those calcium channels open and allow calcium into the cell. Okay. Okay. So in other words, a cell has an electrical channel.
charge and a cell's membrane potential is the difference in charge from the inside of that cell compared to the extracellular or outside of that cell's environment. Yeah, exactly. And then to relate that to learning, when the presynaptic cell releases glutamate and it sends it and binds to the postsynaptic cell, it will activate it and theoretically if there were calcium channels on, that's where the membrane potential would change and the calcium could come in. Yes, exactly, exactly. Awesome, very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. And stay tuned for our next episode of Podcasts at WFU, which is brought to you by The Media, a student-run digital media group at Wake Forest. This episode was produced by Sebastian Pelajero, and music and edits were conducted by yours truly, Jonathan Dratner.